Um, it should be on the slides as well, this scripture, but if you want to open it up in your Bibles, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Chapter 3? Yeah. Uh, 4. Chapter 4. Just testing Jess. Go on, Jess. Cool. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, verse 3 to 8. And I'm going to read from the NLT translation. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins, as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So I was sat in my parents' hallway, just on a chair, and I was waiting for my dad to come and pick me up. And I felt really, really sick. My legs were physically shaking, and I was just completely overwhelmed with nerves. Now, for anyone who knows me would know that that was quite out of character, but in that moment, those feelings were really real for me. In a few minutes' time, hundreds of people who were waiting for me would be looking at me. It was the 3rd of December, 2011, the day that I married Joe. And so as Joe and I said our vows to one another, we were made one flesh. We were united together forever, or at least until one of us snuffs it. So that covenant that Joe and I entered into on that day was relational and relationship-driven. As part of that covenant, we made promises to be faithful to each other, both relationally and sexually. And because of our marriage, I no longer date other men. You won't find me flirting with other men. You won't find me kissing another man or having sex with another man because we're in an exclusive covenant with one another. This scripture for today 1 Thessalonians 4 echoes what is found throughout Scripture, the call for God's people to be holy. So let's just take a look at that verse. Um, Joe's going to unpack it a bit more, but let's just touch on it now. So God's will, verse 3, is for you to be holy. It's God's will. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness. Jump to verse 7. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. There's so many other examples of this within Scripture. Just to give you a couple. 2 Corinthians, these will be on the screen. Chapter 7, verse 1. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit and let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And so today's big idea that we're exploring has obviously been inspired by this consistent call throughout the scriptures for God's people to be holy. 
So the big idea for today is we are called to holiness in all areas of life, in what we do, say, think, and watch. And so in this first half of the talk, in order for us to fully grasp this call to holiness, I'm going to unpack what is kind of a seemingly holy and a religious word, and therefore I'm going to unpack what being holy really looks like. And so I'm going to kind of build the foundation of what biblical holiness is, and then Joe is going to come, and he's going to take us on in this verse, 1 Thessalonians, and he's going to specifically talk around purity um, within sex and relationships. So biblical holiness can best be defined as sacred, set apart, or consecrated. So that means that when we talk about God being holy, or when we read in the scriptures about God being holy, it's referring to the fact that God is unique, that God is sacred, that God is set apart. And then when we refer to our holiness, or when the scriptures refer to that, we're talking about God's people being distinct from the other nations around them. It's about us being set apart or consecrated to God. And biblical holiness actually describes a unique relationship that God has established and desires with his people. And so before any consideration of moral purity, biblical holiness is about our relationship to God. I've got a meme uh, for you, which I personally found really funny when I saw it. If you want to flick that up. So that says, I'm saved, I shouldn't be in this meme. It's kind of like a club scene. But for how many of us is this like what we think of in terms of holiness, you know? It's defined by moral behavior. How many of us have believed that holiness was about being on our best behavior? This kind of list of do's and don'ts. How many people outside of the church think that that's what being called to be holy is about? Well, I want to say today that biblical holiness is more than mere morality. That biblical holiness is so much more than the sum of all you do and all you don't do. Now, to be super clear for the leaders in this community, I am not permissioning you all to go and live recklessly and do whatever you want and whatever's pleasurable. The biblical terms holy and holiness, of course, do carry a connotation of moral purity. Our relationship with God has moral ramifications in the same way that my being married to Joe has ramifications, but it precedes moral behavior. What I mean by that is that our moral purity flows out of our relationship first and foremost with God. So the fact that I don't date or flirt with or kiss or have sex with other men isn't just some weird list of unacceptable moral behaviors for the sake of it. They're a list of unacceptable moral behaviors because of my relationship and my covenant with Joe. And so my behavior, my lifestyle, my choices, and my restrictions flow out of and result from our covenant. And so the fact that holiness is first and foremost about a relationship and not a behavior, it doesn't actually remove or kind of lower the bar on moral purity. Actually, if anything, it raises the bar because holiness is no longer just about how you behave, but it's actually about who you belong to. It's about whose you are and the moral purity that flows out of being God's people. And so what we find is that holiness is actually an identity issue. And so this kind of list of all these things that I no longer can do can only be understood in the context of my covenant with Joe. If I was to say to someone, I don't do any of these things anymore, it could just look like a crude list of do's and don'ts without the context of our marriage and our covenant. 
But it's similar to, say, with our non-Christian friends. If they read some of the commands in Scripture, they might just think that it's a crude list of do's and don'ts. That's what religion is. But when we put it in the context of God's loving, faithful relationship to us, it makes total sense. And so this list of things isn't a negative thing. Actually, it's a really good thing because it honors and protects our covenant. It creates a space of safety and trust for our marriage and our relationship to thrive in. And so there is a moral ramification because of our relationship, but it flows from the fact that I set myself apart or I dedicated myself to Joe, forsaking all others. And so before we're ever called to be good, we're called to be holy. And unless we understand that this is first and foremost about our relationship to God, we fall into the inevitable trap of reducing holiness to mere morality. Who of us have ever lived in that place? Or maybe you're living in that place right now. And so that's what I want to make crystal clear today. That's the foundation I want to lay, that the most basic meaning of the words holy or holiness is to be set apart, to be dedicated to God. And my favorite translation of this is to belong to God. That's what it means to be holy, is to belong to God. And so any and all subsequent notions of what it means to be holy have to be founded, rooted, and based on that truth that we are in relationship with God. We are his people. We belong to him. A couple of scriptures on that. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So in this life... So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2 verse 6, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Holiness is first and foremost a matter of whose we are, of who we belong to or who we give ourselves to. There was an article in the um, Christianity magazine, and it was titled, What Does God Mean When He Asks Us to Be Holy? And the author of that article suggests that as long as our notions of holiness are limited to doing certain things and not doing other things, we can go through our entire lives or obeying rules, or at least, at least maintaining the image that we're obeying these rules, without dealing with far more fundamental questions like, whose are we? To whom do we give our first love and loyalty? And he goes on to say, I love this quote. He says that God's call to be holy is a radical, all-encompassing claim on our lives, our loves, and our very identities. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ requires nothing less than death to our fallen egocentric selves in order that we might live in and for him. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, says Jesus. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? To be holy means that all we are and all we have belongs to God, not ourselves. And that every aspect of our lives is to be shaped and directed toward God. So that is first and foremost what holiness is. Yet, as I mentioned before, there are, of course, moral ramifications that flow from our relationship with God. Think of Prince William and Prince Harry. There are moral ramifications, aren't there? There's expectations on them because of their family line. 
Maybe they've not met them all the time. But because they're royalty, we see them as princes. And so we expect a level of moral purity. And so scripture says of our identity, of our family line in Philippians 3, that we are citizens of heaven. So when you said yes to Jesus, you became a citizen of heaven. If you were born in Britain, you're a British citizen. And so it's the same. When we are baptized, when we are born again, you were born into the kingdom of heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. And so that raises the bar higher, but it's rooted differently. It's rooted in our holiness, which is about everything we are and everything we have belonging to God. And so like your big um, topic for today, we're called to holiness in all areas of life, in what we do, in what we say, in what we think and what we watch. Being called to holiness in all areas of life, including all of those things, means that because I belong to God, I do things differently. Because I belong to God, what I say is different. Because I belong to God, I think differently. Because I belong to God, what I watch or what I consume is different. And so our consecration to God is first relational, but inevitably it does lead to us being changed and transformed, living in a way that is pure and reflecting whose we are. We belong to a holy God, and we are filled with his Holy Spirit. Go figure. And so the call to holiness is actually a call for us to master the flesh and to walk in the victory over sin that Jesus paid for. Now, maybe some of us in this room associate that word holy with something that is completely unrealistic. But when the Bible tells us to be holy, it's about God's desire for us to grow and to become more like Jesus as we mature in our discipleship. And so I want to say that our lives should look outwardly different to our friends and families who don't know Jesus because we are God's people. And this isn't behavior modification or a narrow definition of holiness which solely demands better behavior. This is about us being united with Christ, God's people living out that identity and that calling. And so to close my part on um, this call to holiness before I hand over to Joe. I want to reread the end of that quote that I shared earlier, which said this, To be holy means that all we are and all we have belongs to God, not ourselves. That every aspect of our lives is to be shaped and directed toward God. For me, this alludes to something about holiness, and that's that it all boils down to trust. Will you trust that God is who he says he is? Will you trust that God is as good as scripture says he is? Will you trust that God's commands will lead you into life in all its fullness? Because the world will tell you that you've got it wrong and that you're missing out. And the enemy will tell you that God won't come through for you. He'll cause you to question God's word, to question God's goodness and his faithfulness, just as he did with Adam and Eve. So there's a question that underlies all of this stuff, which is in whom will you put your trust? And the choice that we have is actually really clear. It's either all of our life for all of God's kingdom, or we choose, just like Adam and Eve did, independence from God and our own way. Do you know you can't partially consecrate yourself? You're either in or you're not. Scripture says you can't serve two masters. You're either his or you're not. Are you going to trust him? Are you his? 
And so I want to close with Romans 12, verse 1, that says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Thank you. Amazing. I'm going to get a bit specific now and talk about... I feel like I, it's all I ever talk about now. Um, so that's, that was sex. I'm aware that there are young people in the room, which is great, because why not hear it from here rather than somewhere else, maybe? Um, like me, you may have been brought up with the idea of don't have sex before you're married. Give me your hands up if that was what you grew up with. Nice. Some, some of you were raised in some solid tr Christian families there, maybe. So you understood that there was a physical line that you didn't cross, that protect, protecting your virginity was the goal growing up. What you probably didn't know was why. Why shouldn't you have sex before marriage? Or why marriage was such a big deal? Or why was sex such a big deal? Instead, you got this kind of one line that you carried everywhere and never really grasped or understood it. You probably defined sex as the last base intercourse. You may have found a scale of interactions other than that, that you didn't really know where you stood on and ultimately may have experimented with or at least figured out you'd work it out when you got there, if you got there. I'm just saying how it was for me, maybe. All you knew that was you had to protect your virginity at all costs. That was the goal. And I've come to realize that this is actually a major theme in the Christian experience of many young adults, many adults full stop, and many youth especially. And it's one I take great delight in disrupting whenever I get the chance. So here we go. I want to explain today that purity and virginity are very different things. Um, and actually, they both matter, but that our insistence on protecting virginity over purity is actually creating huge discipleship issues. It has done in me, and I'm sure it is in our churches. And if I ask any of my friends who lead churches, they all nod painfully at that quote. Now, the kingdom of heaven is known often as being upside down. We hear that all the time. It's where you lose to win and die to gain. But actually, I want to say today that the kingdom is also inside out. In Matthew 5, Jesus delivers one of the best and best-known sermons in history, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he reveals some of the vision and values of the kingdom that he had come to establish. I want to read particularly this verse, 27 and 28. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said... Do not commit adultery, or you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a high bar. That is very interesting. Now, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, with one or two exceptions, related mostly to the physical behavior of the people. Murder, adultery, theft, blasphemy, false witness. But with Jesus' new teaching, sin is a heart issue. It's an inside issue. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. As Tim Mackey from the Bible Project said, the adultery commandment didn't get near enough to the heart issue. So Jesus takes it there. And the kingdom that Jesus represented and revealed was hugely different to the kingdom of Israel the Jews had known, studied in their scriptures, and were expecting to be restored. So the power of Jesus' kingdom instead was not physical, dominating, or external, but it was subversive and inside out. In the other words, the weight of the secret and the unseen is incredible. Let me talk you through this table that has probably come up. I can see you all studying already before I even got there, you cheeky. So let me look at this. On the left column, we've got the kingdom of Israel. 
centered on the physical territory of Israel, the land, the physical nation of. Circumcision, the initiation where a physical part of a man was cut away to denote initiation into that community. Law was primarily described as external sin. The law was written on stone physical tablets given to Moses on the mountain and brought down to the people. The cleanliness of the people was related to what they touched physically, what they ate, what they put in to their physical bodies. Their temple was made of physical stone dwelling in the physical place of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem was the physical center and pilgrimage hotspot of that kingdom. But with Jesus, the new kingdom centers on a different reality. It centers on something altogether less physical and seen and known and more intrinsic and internal. So instead, as Stacey read earlier, we become citizens of heaven. But none of us know where that is in a way. Our circumcision, as Paul writes in Romans 2 and Colossians 2, is of the heart. There's something that's cut away of us inside. That the law instead, as Matthew 5 just quoted, relates to what happens in our hearts. The law is written on our hearts, as Paul writes in Romans 2. And then Jesus gives a load of conversations around our cleanliness relating to what we think and what we say. In other words, what comes out of us rather than what goes into us. Paul says, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And then the city of Jerusalem, instead of being this physical pilgrimage spot... Is, this, is pictured in Revelation of descending from heaven, drawing to earth. The inside out. And I think a great example of this is the Pharisees. Absolutely incredible law keepers. Really good at all the physical external stuff, but a, dis, a mess on the inside. Jesus described them as whitewashed tombs. You look pretty, but you're dead. Clean cups on the outside, dirty on the inside. You look good, but on the inside, you're dead. And I think virginity at all costs looks a lot like the left column. It's about managing the external, managing the physical. But I think purity looks a lot like the right. It's about what happens from the inside. It's what changes us and what we are linked to from the inside rather than what we do on the outside. But notice, Jesus did not come to abolish the law but fulfill it. Both sides do matter, but we have insisted on one side above the other and it's causing a lot of problems. If I look at what Stacey said earlier, holiness for us is understood in the context of covenant. So our primary view is not what we can't do, but who we're committed to. And this is really important. And I want to say this to you, especially if you're here as somebody who is single. The marriage covenant is not the answer to your problems. There may be some absolutely amazing desirables about being married, but I want to say to you, the marriage covenant is not the answer to your problems. And the truth actually is, there is a covenant greater than marriage, one that we are all invited into. And when Jesus took the, the cup at the Last Supper, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And there was an invitation for all of us in that moment into a covenant of grace, that the primary means of relationship for us, the new promise of God, is centered on grace through faith. I want to say this, Father God isn't Santa. Do good, get good gifts. He lavishes his love on us and loves to give us good gifts. So actually pursuing purity and holiness in the context of grace in that covenant means we become set apart, marked out as his. That being said, I do want to quickly talk about covenant and context in terms of sex and marriage because I think it's important. Whether you're married here today and you're in a covenant like that or you want to be one day or you're not, there is some stuff in here that I think is really helpful for us to understand human sexuality, let alone our own. So the verse that we read earlier that Jess read, it's the start of it says, God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. 
I kind of grew up reading the NIV, so I, the verse that I get in my Bible says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. I remember as a teenager reading this word sexual immorality so much in Paul's writing. And I was like, he loves this phrase, and I have no idea what it means. I just know that I should run away from it. So I actually looked up what it is. And the Greek word for immorality is porneia. You may recognize the root. And it actually denotes sexual interaction outside of covenant. So what is it about this covenant that we're so interested in? Why does everyone talk about it? I come back to the start of the talk. Why do we always talk about why don't you have sex before you're married? I remember when I used to work in uh, places with lots of people who, who weren't Christians, now I work for a church, I don't have that as much. They're like, do you believe in sex before marriage? As if in any way I was supposed to say, hmm, no, I think it's a conspiracy, it's not real. Of course I believe in it, it happens. That's not the point. Now, whenever Jesus talks about marriage and sexuality, like in Matthew chapter 19, he always goes back to what Tim Mackey calls page one and two of the Bible, Genesis. Stacy's favorite. She always, in her talk, you always hear her say two things, something about Genesis and the word unpack. That's the key to Stacy's talks. So, <laughs> she's great. Genesis 1 and 2. So let's look at this. I'm going to take us through Genesis 1 a little bit. Is that okay? Is everyone with me? Yes, I'm really appreciating your smiles. Thank you. So the first thing God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, having made them in his image and likeness, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. Go ahead and have sex, guys. Go ahead and get it done. Go and do what you need to do. God wastes no time introducing sex to the equation. But deeply significant for me is that before he says that, the text says, God blessed them. God's very first instruction to humanity involved identity, sex, and a commissioning of purpose. So we need to understand that our immeasurable worth as image-bearing creations of God and our sexual identity have been unified since the beginning of creation. AKA, you as a sexual being is not detached from you being made in the image of God. Somehow along the world and in the lines of our history, those things have become separated. They should never have been. Together in the right place, these things are incredibly powerful. But when we do live as though they are separated, we stumble into sexual sin struggles or sexual immorality even, to use Paul's phrase, because we're searching often for the very thing we've dislocated from sexual obedience at the start, our value. A huge majority of sexual mistakes or misdemeanors happen as we use sexual power, prowess, or pleasure to search for affirmation and love, because somehow we've unknowingly cut ourselves off from the true affirmation and love we have already received from the start. As Stacy said, our identity is rooted in royalty, you are heirs of a king and kingdom. You're an image bearer of God. You're not just here. You're his. You belong. Your value is incredible. You are God's greatest design. A couple of verses later, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. All the other creation was good, but you were very good. Being made in his image, having a sexual commissioning was very good. Isn't that good news? Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him or fit for him. A complementary partner. Equality. They fit together. Genesis 2.22, Eve is made out of Adam's side. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. The kids have just left. I've obviously said something here. I've crossed some big lines. Sorry, guys. 
It's the coming out of the rib thing that finished it. The Lord God made a woman from the rib taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So just check this out. God took the woman out of the man and then presented her back to him. Interesting. The man said in response, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So God took woman out of man and then presented her back to him for them to discover in living fellowship what it means for them to be one flesh. Now, I find this interesting. In verse 25, Eve has gone from being referred to as woman to wife. But I didn't clock a wedding ceremony. There's no explanation for it. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame, it says in verse 25. This is really interesting. So before Eve is brought to Adam, the Hebrew word refers to her as woman. But once God presents her back to Adam, the Hebrew word refers to her as his woman, a.k.a. his wife. You'll notice in Genesis 3.6, Adam stops being referred to as man and starts being called husband, his, her man. And in our marriage vows that Stacey mentioned earlier, I said, I, Joe, I said my full name, but I, Joe, take you, Stacey, to be my wife. So what's happened in the garden is their relationship has been blessed by God. There's been an expression of commitment. They've been presented to each other, and they've consummated their relationship by the act of becoming one flesh. That's where we talk about marriage. That's what we mean by marriage. Now, the act of them becoming one flesh is profoundly unifying. It's an act of worship because it glorifies their design. They fit together. It does what God asked them to do. It's the fulfillment of their commission. It's two distinct parts becoming one. It's celebration and it's consummation. And do you know what it is? It's sex. So now we know what that is. Tim Mackey says, Sexual desire and passion has the ability to become an expression of the covenant commitment between husband and wife. It's not just saying vows and getting a certificate. It's a unifying and binding of heart, mind, and body. And that out of that power, new life can be generated and created. So that's the context within covenants. And if that wasn't beautiful enough, Genesis 2.25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no lust, no abuse, no manipulation, no body image issues, no hiding or covering up, no shame. There was a holy purity to the whole process. And their sex, therefore, was not dirty, tainted, damaged, broken, misunderstood, misused, or abused, and neither are they. That is godly sex expectations. But if sex was a God-given gift for us, pure in its intent, edifying of our worth, then why is it also the source of so much dissension, obsession, abuse, and hurts. How did it go from virtue to vice? We have to question where our understanding and our expectations comes from about sex. Everybody in this room, I hate to say it, has sexual expectations, or you're going to have them soon. Where are they coming from? Where did they come from? What things have you seen or watched or heard or consumed that have given you an idea of what sex will be like for you? This is true in marriage as much as anywhere, by the way. Now, I could simplify it, the word or the world. Maybe that's too simplistic. But who or what is most shaping your view of identity, sex, and purpose? Paul referred to the world as the kingdom of darkness. 
saying that it distorts and corrupts God's design for us, God's design for intimacy. I found it really helpful a few years ago to realize that the enemy is incapable of creation or original design. He's only capable of distortion. So anything that God made beautiful or holy, the enemy's only power is to distort it and make it otherwise. I have definitely found that to be the case in relation to sex and my sexuality. John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Some of us know that more than others. Now, the reality is we can talk about sex in terms of good or bad, and we've been missing the point. It's a power. In Song of Songs, chapter 8, love or desire is referred to as a blazing fire, a mighty blaze. Let me ask you a question. Is fire bad or is fire good? In the right context, fire is incredible. It can heat, cook, purify, give lights. But that exact same power in a different context can burn, melt, scold, and destroy when you violate its barrier. So when we talk about desire, about sex, about love, well, not so much love, but especially sex and desire, good or bad isn't the right question. It's a power. And anybody who has sexual desire or passion in this room knows that to be the case. So sexual interaction within the covenant of marriage isn't about, well, it's about recognizing and respecting the power of the flame and about recognizing and respecting the power of the covenant to bring safety and protection to it. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. So therefore, it's not about how far we can go or what we can get away with, particularly before marriage. We all know the classic saying, don't play with fire. The truth is, most of us want to. (laughs) It's attractive. Subconsciously, we might ask, how close can I get to the boundary without getting hurt? How far is too far? Every time I've been youth worker in the past, the question you get, how far is too far? Wrong question. We can talk all night about first base, second base, third base. We're still talking baseball. We're all in the game. 1 John 2, John said, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Not I'm writing this to you so that you will try not to sin, or not sin very much. Straight up, I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. Now, I'm not a chemist, but I used to live with chemists when I was a uni student. In chemistry, purity is power. Is that true? Yeah, there's a few nods from the chemist-looking people. The smart ones, that's what I mean. Now, this is going to sound controversial, but this this is what I said to OH1. So this is, I can say this with confidence, that this is what I said to my church, and I'm the bottom line for that, so it comes back to me. So if you've got any problems with this, speak to Luke. But <laughs> for me, this really affects what we do in relationships. And this is particularly true of people before marriage, but it's so important for us in marriage. When we, when we try and enjoy the benefits of marriage without the covenant of marriage, we're undermining the process. So for me, that includes if I share a bed together with somebody before I'm married, if I live together with someone before I'm married, if I sleep together before I'm married... I'm attempting to enjoy the benefits of marriage without the covenant of marriage, without the protection of the flame. It's not safe, it's probably not wise, and it's not set apart. And if according to everything that's been said so far, it's not holy. Now, I realize that I'm going hard, and I'm uh, putting a high bar. But I actually, from my experience, have found, yeah, that's probably true. And people talk about no regrets. I don't believe in the mantra of no regrets. I actually actually do regret. I do have regrets about how I've behaved in the past, about decisions I've made or things that I've done wrong. I'm not riddled with guilt. I'm free from condemnation, but I wish 
that I could have done something differently. That's why I speak with a high bar, because I know the cost of it. And in purity speak, many things happen in our heads and hearts way before we get to this point anyway. You think about adultery. I know somebody who had an affair in a Christian you know, leadership position. Before they slept with somebody else, there were a hundred decisions that were made before that point. This is where we talk about purity. The act of them sleeping with somebody else is one thing we talk about. The decisions leading up to that, the many hundreds of decisions made on both parts, that's where we talk about purity. So the reality of this is that the marriage covenant doesn't become a catch-all safety net for your sexual desires, for your longings and your brokenness. Sex within marriage does take work. It still takes work. It's still taking us work. We've been married, what, seven years that we got married in December. It still takes work. We still need freedom and healing. And you can be having sex in a marriage covenant and it can still be unholy and impure because it's not about what is happening physically. It's what's going on, heart, spirit, inside out. Purity is much more than not having sex until you're married. Purity is about saying, God, you are the most important relationship in my life. This is where I want us to finish and respond. And I recognize that I've just been 100 miles an hour for that. Is everyone all right? Sweet. Um, We're going to respond together. I'd like to invite you to stand if you're willing or able to do so. And um, I read in Scripture of there being this... um, annual kind of purification prayer that was done on the Day of Atonement uh, in the Old Testament. And basically, it's like this way of the whole community coming before God, praying a prayer, and it's like a clean slate from then on. And I feel like, sexually, this is something where I still want to be at as a, as a married man, but also just for everybody in this room to know that by the grace of God, there is, there is possible for us to be made totally clean with him. So I'm going to put the prayer up on the screen. It's a, it's a very simple one-line prayer. It says, God, take me back to how I was created as a sexual being, pure, without shame or condemnation. Whether you're young or single or married or dating, this is relevant and important to you. And I want to invite you to pray it with me as a declaration together of and a desire to be made pure.